Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Rational Faiths Podcast, the best podcast on the blabbernacle. We have yet another installment of the Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist today with Laurel and Jennifer. Laurel and Jennifer, how are you doing? Great. Awesome. Awesome. So it has been a very, very long time. I don't know how many months it's been, but it's been a long time since we've recorded one of these. And uh, unfortunately, many of you may already have noticed, but there's a little bit of sad news that Rational Faiths has kind of run its course. It's being archived, so the articles and stuff will still be available, uh, but the cost of maintaining the website and the interests and the activity on the website is kind of uh, uh, not working in the right direction to keep things going. And so Rational Faiths is going to be archived, and the podcast, of course, goes right along with it. So this recording that we're doing right now is the final episode, one last Rational Faiths podcast episode, one last Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist episode. It's been a lot of fun recording all of these with Laurel and Jennifer. I've really enjoyed it, Um, but this is going to be it. Well, kind of it. Kind of it. I'm transitioning. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going, it's not the last Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist because I'm moving over to Mormon Marriages blog, which is a blog <clears throat> run by Nate and Angela Bagley that um, is a designed to have um, resources and interviews and examples to facilitate uh, Latter-day Saints creating better marriages. And so they actually reached out to me and asked me, if I would be interested uh, in moving the podcast series over to their to their website, and so I think they're a, an excellent fit, and so we're going to keep doing the series. Oh, this is going to be episode twenty six, so I think we'll just go right on to episode twenty seven over there. And what I think what I'm going to do maybe a little bit differently is try and have a bit of a theme. Um, and then have people ask questions that might fit along with the theme and do a podcast maybe once every four to six weeks. So um, so we'll talk about things related to sex and, and intimacy, of course, but also relationships in general and how they impact uh, couples' ability to kind of have intimate relationships. So... so, But I will miss you guys. You, it's, been, it's been a very, very fun thing for me to do this with you and you know it's really I think been a, a great resource for a lot of people so so it's a little sad for me to be wrapping it up with you guys yeah I've got to put the mute button on so you can't hear my tears <laughs> <laughs> oh the tear mute <laughs> the tear mute we need that uh, it has been a lot of fun you know I've kind of I really enjoyed doing the podcast overall for a long time. I think I did it every week for two years straight, roughly, and then wow. I kind of got tired of it. And but I still really enjoyed. I always look forward to reviewing the questions and talking with both of you. And I just, you know, everybody likes sex. It's a good subject anyway. <laughs> but uh, it's, you know, just as we've had all these discussions, we've I've come to know that it's not just about the act of sex, but it's so relational, and it, you know, it. It's a way to find problems and a way to solve problems in, in relationships. Yeah. And it's just been a, a really enjoyable uh, 
time to kind of be yeah. let into these unique situations and get your insight on it and just discuss them. It's been very enjoyable. And it's it's been kind of, I mean, also for me, just, you know, the trust that people have given us all with giving these questions. Um, and I mean, yes, they're anonymous, but but still that um, that we've been able to discuss things that are so intimate for people has has been an honor. And also, you know, I've learned so much on this. Um, and, and again, like Brian was saying, it goes into so many different areas. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's great. So we do have two questions, though, right? We're... We do have two questions. And as usual, before we get to those two questions, do you, are there any other announcements besides the serendipitous transition from Rational Faiths to, what was it, Mormon Marriages? Mormon Marriages blog, yes. Mormon exactly. Marriages blog. Yeah, let's see. I We've been traveling for many months as a uh, we've been abroad, but we're back now, so I've got several things scheduled. And one is we're doing a two-day Art of Desire Women's Workshop in Alberta, Canada, and that's about two-thirds sold out, but there's still tickets um, at the end of August. And then I'm going to be doing a three-day women's retreat where you stay overnight um, in Eden, Utah, the lovely event. We did it last year. It was really just a beautiful setting. Um, and and then I'm also going to be doing a couples retreat in Jackson Hole, Wyoming again this year at the end of October. Doesn't overlap with Halloween this year as it did last year. Um, and um, but you can find out all about those three events on my website. And actually, we still have some spots left in our France trip. We're going to France for uh, uh, ten days in the spring of 2020. So we did do Italy in February, and it was really an unbelievable experience. We had an excellent time and was I was able to really interact very closely with about uh, 13 couples, give them feedback, teach them every day. And I really saw some amazing transformations happening for people. And, and plus we were in beautiful Italy. So it was, uh, that I helps. knew we had to do it again. Yeah, that does help. That's, it does help it's a, in a way to be away from kids and to really focus on, growing your relationship. So, so we're doing that again in, in France, um, in May. Jeez. Of Good grief. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would have a hard time not being focused on just the food. Italian food, oh, French food. It's a sensual delight. I mean, yeah. really in Italy, you, all the art and the beauty and the cuisine Oh. And the sexuality <laughs> and then the friendships, you know, the, the couples became, you know, because people really sort of were just showed up and were honest because they wanted my help and my, my feedback. And so any pretense broke down pretty quickly. Hmm. And these people are still very good friends and, uh, you know, continue to interact with each other regularly. So it's, um, it was, it was great. Well, that's great. So you've got all kinds of workshops on the calendar. Um, yeah, I'm actually trying to do a little bit more because I think they're a very cost-effective way to help people, um, give them some feedback because people more than needing necessarily weekly support, in my view, of, in the context of therapy, people need to see what's actually happening because often we can't see what is keeping us stuck. And once we wake up to it, it 
then we know what we have to start doing differently and then we can grow in the ways that really can change and trans transform things. And so it, it's helped me to see that, you know, helping people see more clearly what is going wrong and what they need to do differently can be a very effective way of helping people uh, create better marriages. So how do the workshops help people see that better than a weekly therapy session? Well, I think one thing is that you're immersed in it. So you're really addressing things for a couple of days. You're not just coming in for an hour and then going back to your day-to-day -day life. You are away from kids. You're away from work. And so there's much more of an immersion in it. Yeah. And I'm giving examples and I'm interacting with the group as much as they want me to, where people might bring up this is what something that's always happening between us. And I'm able to show them what's happening in a different way of thinking about it than they've ever thought about it. And it, it allows them to see it in a way where they actually understand their participation in their suffering. And so this is often shocking to people like they, they don't haven't seen themselves in this way, or they haven't seen what they're doing that contributes to their unhappiness. But once they see it, they're now, they have more agency, they're more freed up to actually self-confront change and do things differently. So it's the immersion, the focus, and then the feedback that they can get from me if they want it. Um, so I think it's all those factors. Hmm. Um, and the other, the other thing I would just say quickly is like, especially on the Italy trip, because I could see people interacting it's a little different than coming into an office and people self-reporting because when people come in and self-report, it includes their self-deception. Mm, Not yeah. that people are trying to lie to me. They just have their own narratives of who they are. Yeah. But when I actually watch people interact, I can just see, I mean, I, that's kind of what it is to be a therapist, but I can see what they're doing um, instinctively. And so it's much easier to um, diagnose kind of quickly what, what, going on in the marriage and what it is they need to hmm. shift. Oh, yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, that makes sense. The other thing I was wondering about um, is uh, seems like for happiness, maybe this applies in this case, because I think it would be I would experience a great deal of happiness in Italy or France, probably. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But having those experiences <laughs> The memorable experiences are yeah. much more important than, you know, having a new device Absolutely. or something like that oh, as yeah. far as your own well-being. And uh -huh. I would imagine for your the well-being of your relationship as well to have that intense, hopefully positive yeah. experience together. It's kind of an anchor point, I think, for, you know, some of the couples that went that I've done some, on, some work with after the fact. It's sort of a touchstone of a place where they really transitioned into something new and better. And holding on to those memories and that sort of shared experience as they face the rigors of life and work and kids. So I, I think it, it's a very powerful way to, to bring the level of your marriage functioning up a notch. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's exciting. Um, and we have two exciting questions. The first one is, uh, from a man and the second one is from a woman so I think I'll read the first one and Laurel can read the second one if that's okay aye alright so let's dive in <clears throat> question number one dear doctor my wife and I have been married for just over two years and I had a question for you 
Is it normal for adult males to have consistent wet dreams? My wife and I have sex maybe twice a month. Not my choice, but hey, whatever makes her happy, right? But I have wet dreams about twice as often. Most of the time, I can't remember my dreams, but the ones I do remember are usually ones with her in it. It is less frequent when we have sex, when we have more sex, but it still happens, sometimes in the same night. I also get really bad testicular pain when we go without sex for too long, and it sometimes is a precursor to a wet dream. Ejaculation helps with the pain, but since I don't feel comfortable ejaculating myself, I have to ask my wife for help. She used to help me by giving me a quick hand job, but now she just tells me to take Tylenol, which helps with the pain, but not the wet dreams. I've tried to research it, but I haven't been able to find a clear answer as to whether it is healthy or not. I was told growing up that they would stop as I got older, but they seem to get more frequent, sometimes happening twice a night. It's getting to the point where I can't help but feel guilty about it or feel that our relationship is broken because I literally can only dream to have more sex with my wife. What are your thoughts? Okay. Good. First of all, there's nothing abnormal about what this person's experiencing. And, you know, many people, a lot of times we associate wet dreams with adolescent uh, boys in particular, but even females will also have wet dreams. It's just not as noticeable. Um, And um, males who are even sexually active will have wet dreams. And there's just a spectrum in terms of how much people will. Um, some will have them very frequently, some will have them much less frequently, but it's just the way for the testicles to create new sperm and keep the sperm healthy, um, and it's just a natural process. Um, it is true, it, at least in the case of many people, that the more frequently one has sex and or masturbates, then the less likely the body will have a wet drink because it doesn't need to rejuvenate and create new sperm. So. Um, so there's nothing to feel guilty about or be ashamed of because, well, first of all, you have no control over it. So there's, we can't be responsible for things we literally can't control. And so it may be inconvenient and it may make staying at other people's houses feel uh, difficult, but it, it's a completely normal process. I think, you know, the reality of the pain um, I mean, I think you can you can think about whether or not you feel comfortable bringing yourself to orgasm as a way of alleviating the pain. I think we have a lot of anxiety about that culturally, um, that we somehow shouldn't touch our own genitals. It's only okay if our spouse touches our genitals. I personally think that it's a little bit of an immature idea because in a sense, then you have to basically pressure your wife into service. <laughs> and she's like, take an aspirin, you know, I don't want to deal with it. Um, but, I, you know, I, if you don't feel comfortable touching yourself, you know, you can take uh, pain relief, I suppose. But, yeah, I think the, the emission is going to relieve some of the pressure and the pain. And so you can think about what you think is the most um, decent, fair way to do that. I think the issue of having a better sexual relationship is a valuable and legitimate issue. I don't think I would want to position it around uh, my testicles need it <laughs> because uh, then it's in the frame of obligation and work rather than the more, I think, legitimate and romantic idea of I want to have a closer 
more meaningful sexual relationship with you. And I think it's certainly fair that you care about the fact that your wife is interested in having sex only twice a month, but you're also part of the relationship. And so it isn't just in my view for it to be a happy and a healthy relationship. It, 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 it ought not to just revolve around what your wife wants, but something that works for both of you. And if it's about your wife, you know, servicing, that's of course not going to go well. It's not going to be, even if you, uh, have an orgasm in her presence, it isn't going to be what I would imagine that you want, which is to feel desired and to feel, you know, a sense of closeness and friendship with your wife through your sexuality. So I think um, a better way of addressing it is just daring to be more honest and say that you would like to have more sex and that you want to have a, a more active sexual experience with her and you'd like to create something with her that would feel desirable to her as well. But I don't think, I think while sometimes we teach men that if they're good men, they will not address or, or name their desires or not pressure their wives, so to speak. Um, I'm not so much talking about pressuring, but, but being more intimate, being more willing to show up and talk honestly about what you desire and what your experience is and, and um, not in a way to obligate, but to invite something more shared between you, something that you can both feel at peace about. So I wouldn't pathologize the nocturnal emissions. And, you know, people don't even have to have erotic. Sometimes people are having erotic dreams, but they aren't necessarily erotic dreams when you have uh, a wet dream. And so I wouldn't pathologize it, it's just normal. And then I think I would um, dare to be more honest and treat your wife more like an equal, not like somebody who needs to be protected so much. And allow her to maybe address and face her partnership and her marriage and, and sort out for herself what she feels good about either um, addressing or evolving in to create something that you both feel good about. I, I had one thought that just struck me as you were talking about how men are often culturally conditioned to, uh, you know, especially in our culture, that they're good if they don't, you know, <laughs> if they're not um, expressing their sexual desire. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that's also because too often it is often expressed aggressively mm -hmm. in the larger outside culture. So I don't know, like, I, I can yeah. see how it could come across as threatening if it's not done the right way. But I... I just think I, I just don't know if there's a good model for men to be able to come to their partners in a way that is honest, but vulnerable um, so that it's not threatening, but it is still like this is but these are my needs. And this is what I what I want in the relationship without it, you know, being like the outside model we often have that is aggressive, that is demanding. Yeah, I mean, yes, I actually this is another thing I. I have made a commitment to myself. I'm going to be teaching a online course about sexual men's sexuality before the year is over. And I will be talking about a lot of this and also pornography and just kind of our cultural framing around it. Because while we have a certainly complicated women's relationship to sexuality, we have mm -hmm. definitely done this to men as well. Mm -hmm. I think on the one hand, we teach men a framing of sexual entitlement that is there and, and many, many men pick up on that and can be pressuring and 
can be uh, demanding or entitled or punishing if they don't get the sex they think they deserve from mm -hmm. their partner. But then more sensitive men or men who don't want to be that kind of guy can then go into the sort of benevolent patriarch model and be overly apologetic for their sexuality, overly uh, protective in a sense of, meaning they see sexuality as something a man does to a woman mm -hmm. and they don't want to be that kind of guy. Yeah. And they're ambivalent because they want the intimacy of sex and they want the love and the validation of it, but they don't want to do something to their partner that she doesn't want and who could blame them. But it's a kind of uh, deep ambivalence. And then oftentimes we then, you know, men will be looking, I mean, women do this too, but men will be looking to women to validate the legitimacy of their desire and legitimacy of their sexuality, which isn't very sexy for a woman. It's, you know, it's too apologetic. It's too little boy. And so we, but we set it up this way culturally. So I think that, you know, a lot of times people don't know how to name what they want without believing it's going to be pressuring. And, and it will pressure in the sense that when you confront your spouse's differences, it's pressuring just by nature because it's pressuring you to deal with how they're different from you and to make some choices around that fact, which is different than being manipulative or coercive or demeaning. And those two do not have to go hand in hand. And you can own the legitimacy of your desires and the legitimacy of your desire for your spouse, right? I mean, mm -hmm. don't we all want our spouse to desire us? I mean, we do, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody, everybody wants to be desired. They just want to have control over whether or not sex happens and so on. So uh, there's nothing to apologize for in that. I think you can be apologetic if you are too coddling of your spouse or you're too oppressive. I think that's different. So there's a difference between intimacy and honesty and coercion um, and punishment or pressure. So I think people ought to be more intimate. People ought to be more honest because then at least things are on the table to be dealt with more directly by the couple. But couples are good at, at colluding in pretense and kind of keeping the realities that they aren't sure the couplehood can handle, um, that, they, that the relationship can handle. They're good at sort of taking those things off the table but resenting it at the same time. And, and, and it keeps couples stuck. So that model or the ideal uh, middle ground is kind of hard to visualize because uh, there's not a lot of models for it. There's a models of how not to do it, <laughs> uh, but there's not a lot of models of how to do it. Yeah, because a lot of people have never seen collaborative relationships. They've never watched parents in an intimate relationship truly operate like equals working towards a shared goal. They, people see a lot more of manipulation and hiding and pressuring. Um, and so it can feel very foreign if you haven't seen really loving collaborative relationships. And, and most people have not. Most people have not. But it's, thing, it's something people can learn because once they start seeing what they're doing that's undermining and what's making them weaker, then they start reaching for something better and more fair and, and, the, and the brain can figure it out. You start, you get better at doing it and your spouse can track it as different as well. So, you know, I, I want men to not apologize for their sexuality if they are using their sexuality in a way to create goodness in their relationship. There's nothing to apologize for. And 
you know, I work with lots of women whose husbands are the lower desire partner or who don't want to deal with their sexuality. And believe me, they're heartbroken by it. So it's, you know, as much as women sort of stereotypically resent their husband's sexuality, I haven't yet met a woman who actually wants that sexuality to go away or to not be directed at the, them. And so it's really about learning how to be collaborative with somebody who's different than you. It's always uncomfortable. It's always hard to have a spouse who wants different things, but that's part of the system that develops us and grows us up, grows us into people that are capable of love. So since we just talked about a lack of models, is there any like role play we could do with this? Just because, I mean, like when Brian brought that up too, it's like, yeah, I don't, you know, is there, or is there any media that like shows like this is a healthy, like way to express your sexuality without being overbearing or apologizing Mm -hmm. for it? Mm -hmm. Well, I could do it right now if you wanted. Um, You could say if you were this guy, I would really like to have more sex with you. Yeah, I, I think we're fine just twice a month, though. I that that feels fine to me. I, it's clear to me that that does feel fine to you because that's how we've done it is really around what you want. But it's only fine for you. Well, what are you saying? I have to have more sex with you? Uh, most definitely not. Well, what do you want then? I'm saying to you, I would like to have more sex. So how are we going to do that? Honey, I'm not here to tell you how we're going to do that. I'm just being honest with you that I would like to have more sex. I'd like to have a more passionate relationship. I'd like to have it more than twice a month. I've tended to stay quiet about that because I've sort of in my mind made you too weak to, to handle my sexuality or somehow that I've got to protect you from sexuality. I think that's the wrong idea about you, the wrong idea about us. And I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just being honest with you that I would like to have more sex. It would mean a lot to me. I I love making love to you. I love being with you. And I, I just think it would be a good thing to be more frequent. I, would, I think it would be a good thing in my life. I would like for it to be a good thing in our lives. She doesn't have a response to that at this point. No, I think I, I think that sharing that kind of vulnerability from his perspective where it's not just, I want you to do this, but it's like, I want this because this is important to me and you are important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that I feel like would open it up a lot as opposed to, you know, I think of other ways people might try to do this by guilting them saying mm-hmm. you have an obligation to me mm-hmm. or, or trying to playing the pity card. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is strength in that saying, you know, with that strength of saying being vulnerable, saying this is important to me. And also, I desire you. And that, yeah. to me, is a position of strength yeah. because it's stating a desire. Yeah, nothing um, to apologize for in that. Right. Yeah, and not apologizing for it. And, yeah. Well, and I think that she's feeling his lack of apology, lack of manipulation, uh, clarity um, of self. I don't like the word vulnerable in this because it's not a vulnerable position. It's a mm. strong position. It's yeah. an open position is what yes. I think you're pointing to. It's yes. open. Yes. He's letting himself be knowable without yeah. demanding that she's okay with it or that she comply with it. Yeah. And so it's a strong position. I think what many women in that, in your uh, seat would feel is a kind of, it kind of pressured, but not because he's pressuring, pressured by the fact that he's just saying, honestly, he wants something and a kind of begrudging respect for it. 
because he's not apologizing. He's talking to me like talking to me straight, like I'm his equal. Mm-hmm. And it pressures me to deal with or confront my own anxieties about sex or my own lack of generosity to accommodate another person in my life or whatever I might want to justify my current comfort around. So I think the woman in, in your position would often, not just women, the person on the other side of this dynamic would often be looking for some way to say you're being unfair or you're, you're like what you were doing in the role play, somehow trying to get him, get the idea on the table that he's being unfair and demanding as a way of pushing off the pressure on herself. And that's a very, when couples start to grow up, that's often what happens is the person in your position, Laurel, starts to feel that it's pressuring them to look at themselves. And rather than do that, they would rather frame it in, oh, man, you know, they always want sex or whatever it is, mm-hmm. right? And and to reduce it again. And oftentimes the person in my position, I'm role-playing, would feel frustrated or angry or sort of regress to their old position rather than uh, holding steady and saying, no, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just here telling you what I really feel, what I really would like. Um, I respect your own ability to figure out what you want to do about that. (laughs) Well, and and it's very disarming. Yes. Because I think if you go in looking to fight with your partner and throw the blame back at them, if they don't actually take the blame or throw it back at you, right? It make you can't go into that mode, and it's quite disarming. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think the exactly. way it's delivered is really important because you could say the same thing. Like you could walk in and yeah. say, "I'm not telling you to do the dishes, but I just want them done," <laughs> you know, or something, you know, whatever chore, <laughs> mow the lawn. I don't care. You know, I don't. <laughs> I'm not telling yeah, you tomorrow, no, no mom, but I'm just saying it's getting long out there. You know, it could be heard or it could be delivered sure, in, you know, a ineloquent way. Well, there's an important thing is this is not about the words I'm saying. Yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah. Oh, right. I, you know, it's like it's the mind that I'm in because yeah. the man in this role play is in a different mind than that. He's not trying to manipulate, but he's also not stepping back. And so it's. It's again, a lot of people might take that and they'll use the same words and then it won't work. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> because yeah. they're in a different mind and they haven't self confronted. But anyway, so, you know, my courses that they, they address this a lot, like to really look at who you are and how you're addressing these challenges. Because, you know, 90% of the battle is dealing with yourself in these things. And uh, it's really easy to go blind to who we are, get fixated on what our spouse does. And so, you know, uh, so much of a good marriage is becoming somebody capable of intimacy, capable of love. Yeah, that, that was a interesting discussion based on that question. <clears throat> All right, question number two. Yes, 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 yes. All right. My husband and I have been married for 12 years and have a pretty good relationship. My libido has been super high and super low throughout the marriage. Recently, we found that to get me in the mood, viewing suggestive pictures of women really helps. Obviously, my husband enjoys this also, but is sensitive to it and makes sure I'm in charge of what we look at. As a teen, I got the porn is bad talk and feel guilty the next day. Is this considered porn and is it damaging to our relationship on the long run? Or am I just feeling guilty because I was taught to? Thank you. Okay, good. I think it's very typical 
for us to feel really a lot of anxiety or questions about drawing on anything other than looking into our husband's or wife's eyes <laughs> to feel erotic interest. Because I think the way that many of us have been socialized around sexuality is that sexual feelings are dangerous and therefore do and doing anything that creates sexual feelings is dangerous and or infects the purity of the relationship. And, you know, I don't think it's just religious teachers that think this. I think a lot of us feel enough anxiety about the weirdness of eroticism that we want the idea that of rose petals on the bed gazing into our spouse's eyes as the only ingredient needed to have passionate lovemaking. <laughs> and sometimes that's true, especially if you're in Italy. Okay. But <laughs> I think that, <laughs> right, you know, if you're away from kids and you're really appreciating your partner and you've had a beautiful day. Yes. That can be enough for some of us. But I think that when you're in the drudgery of housework and children and busy schedules, we need things to bring us from the mundane into the domain of the erotic. We need a way to transition ourselves. And many people have been taught to feel guilty about that fact. I don't know how else people would do it. Sometimes when I talk to LDS clients and they tell me how they don't let themselves think these kinds of thoughts or they don't let themselves engage any kind of meaning outside of the marriage itself, um, meaning the immediacy of their marriage partner right there. I'm like, wow, you must be a sexual champ because the fact that you can have an orgasm when you have put such strictures on your mind is pretty remarkable. So I think that we need often a way to bring ourselves into that erotic domain. For many, it's fantasy, favorite ideas, favorite meaning frames that allow them to move into the sexual. The visual is a powerful way to do it. I mean, we don't like to say that because pornography scares us. Um, but the visual is a powerful way to bring, to engage the brain's eroticism because of not, not just the visual, uh, stimulation itself, but also the meaning that we will place often on the visual image and what kind of sexual meaning it creates or holds for us. And so um, the way I always think about this, and those of you who have listened to all 25 episodes before this probably won't be surprised by what I'm going to say, but, uh, you know, really for me, it's what are you creating through that process? What is it creating in you? What's it creating in your partnership? Um, what are the meanings that um, are created through doing this? If this is a way, you know, to, if you look at sensual images of women and this is a way to feel interest in sex and interest in one another and to really enjoy your sexual partnership um, and you really come out of that feeling better as a couple, happier as a couple, rejuvenated, I mean, I will give you that it's a strange part of human, our human nature, the erotic, but it's a very important part. And I see it as a good thing if it creates that strength and vitality and sexual interest between you because it's such an important part of the good life. And so um, 
certainly people can think about what are the ways they can do that that are congruent enough with what they believe is fair and right and good. But it's, um, I think really thinking about what it creates is really an important marker and measure. And, um, you know, for example, there was this website no longer exists, but it was called The Passionate Wife. And it didn't show any genitalia, um, but it would show uh, sensual sexual images of couples. And they were very tasteful, beautiful portrayals of loving sexuality. And I had a client who'd grown up in an abusive situation, and I suggested to her the possibility of looking at this website. And it surprised me because she came back to the next session and said, it was like the first time she understood that sex could really be about love and to see the kind of passion between these couples and the desire between them. And that that really gave her a whole different way of thinking about sex as something that was, you know, not just exploitative. That had been her entire experience. And so, so it was technically pornographic because these are people that are, you know, undressed, although they're tasteful depictions. Uh, and yet it carried for her a meaning that really allowed her to transition into a different possibility and a much stronger and more um, godly type possibility around her sexuality. And so, um, again, I think it's really about what it creates inside us and between us, how we engage the erotic in our lives. So, um, yeah. Well, that's my response. And that website is down. <laughs> I know. Such a bummer. I keep saying to my husband, he needs a pen name, but then he needs to reinvent a site like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that story hurts me though. That, oh, that, that was, I mean, in a way it's, it is beautiful that like she could see that, you know, that sexuality could be loving and sensual. Um, but, Oh, it just hurts to, to understand someone coming from that place. Sure. Well, it's kind of similar broadly as the first kind of the, some of the stuff we talked about after the first question that you have these extremes of, mm-hmm. you know, essentially violence and mm-hmm. then nothing on the other end. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's not like the happy medium that's. Yeah. Right. That's what you're after. What I think 99% of people would be after anyway. Yeah. Right. It's not as right, exciting, exactly. apparently. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know why it's so hard to find. As um, a, a, like from a media perspective, it's not going to From a media perspective, it, yeah. Why there's more eyes. of this out there. Interesting. But yeah. What has been, uh, what has been your experience with people quote unquote transgressing, you know, finding these tools that you don't hear about in general conference, you don't hear about at church. But, you know, looking at, in this case, I don't know what it would be, softcore pornography or something like that, but sensual, Mm -hmm. sexual images, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. that's not going to come up in Sunday school. How have Mm -hmm. people handled, you know, creating that flexibility in their personal life, personally, and then also as a couple, getting both people on board to be okay with something like that? You know, it's hard for me to actually answer because I obviously there's, I don't know how many people have managed this or handled this, but 
there I, I work with a lot of couples that are devout members of the church and this is just a good part of their life to be creative in this way um for some couples they look for good websites where they can find the kind of content that they find inspiring and erotic but not counter to their sense of decency and there's other couples i know who you know spend a lot of energy taking pictures and movies of themselves and creating erotic in that way i know other couples where they you know find libraries or something like called lustylibrary.com or something <laughs> you know you can read erotic so he would read his wife a bedtime story every night from the lusty library or every time they were interested in having sex and this was extremely helpful for her to be told a bedtime story <laughs> and you know he didn't need he didn't need so much that she's the one who needed these stories and she was ambivalent about the fact that she needed them she thought that was something was wrong with her but i think it's just a way of getting away from kids and all this and being brought to the sexual and, and being able to really experience this awesome part of being human so you know i i know lots of about couples who know this is an important part of their lives and they maybe don't talk about it at the word dinner but um why not (laughs) (laughs) exactly just take some very awkward conversations there (laughs) but you know they, they 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 take seriously the idea that they as a couple get to decide what creates strength for them and to not apologize for that. And I think that's really, really good. So I would have a question then for, say someone listening to this, um, this is like the first time they've thought about this and maybe they're gonna talk to their partner. Um, If you're going from that, all images that create sexual feelings are bad to, okay, maybe, maybe this will be okay for our marriage. What are some good guidelines for knowing when you know, you were crossing boundaries with yourself or your partner? I mean, I, I think it's like anything in any relationship. If you're being coercive and pressuring and you're not staying partnered and you're not, uh, you know, you're going against what you can do together. And it, good sex is you stay doing the things that you can really do and be with one another you're not pressuring or coercing the other person to go beyond where they can really be. I also think a good part of a good marriage is to have some courage and be willing to try some things and to be uncomfortable sometimes to expand beyond what you are find most comfortable or familiar. But you're always in a navigation around what do I really feel good about and what do I what can I really um, sort of back up with, within me from a moral perspective. And if you're a good couple, you're not going to screw with that in each other. You're you're going to um, pace it in a way that you can really um, not get ahead of what you can back up with your integrity. So I yeah, so like checking in with your partner yes. is huge. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Checking in and checking in that you're not being exploited every because. You know, there's always communication, of course. But the thing is, we often can tell if our spouse is anxious or isn't with us sexually, mm-hmm. or we can tell if we're doing something they don't want. And are you going to keep going or are you going to back off and, and stay partnered? Because mm-hmm. when people don't stay partnered, they end up ultimately paying a really big price in their sexual relationship. And the importance of working together is it, good sex is a team sport. And if you break partnership or, you know, you 
you do what serves only you, you pay a price because your spouse tracks your selfishness and tracks your self-service and it, it damaging. Yeah, because well, I think my my because I, I have heard of couples where it something would start out like, oh, this is arousing us together, but then one of them goes on ahead without the other in a sense, and mm-hmm. the, you know when one of the partners is like, well, this isn't really doing it for me, but the other key is like, well, mm-hmm. I like this, so we're gonna mm-hmm. keep doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and sure. and I think especially oh sorry, I was just saying one thing. I think especially in our culture where we are so tight about pornography. If there's any kind of release, sometimes I think people just go like a little too like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The moderation of it, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and I would imagine in any partnership where that's happening in the sexual realm, I'm sure it's happening in other realms in their marriage. Yes. And so, and I also agree with what you're saying around some of the immoderation around this, that it's kind of interesting, you know, just that a lot of times couples have a hard time uh, in some ways, like, because sex is so infrequent, like, I can't even touch him, because if I do, then he thinks sex is happening, so if I just even touch him, then we're going to have sex. Meaning, the difficulty for many couples of being able to stay with one another and create something with each other. So a lot of the exercises I do with people and talk about in the courses I do is, is about partnering and partnering in sensual, intimate behavior and staying partnered, even as you increase the level of exposure and sexuality and eroticism, but to stay partnered, that's the basic framing. And um, creating that capacity for collaboration is a really, really, really big deal for being capable of intimacy. More important than whatever sex act you do. Um, it, you know, some people I have just doing a hug and they start learning how to collaborate in a hug. And they say that it's the most intimate thing they've ever done with each other, even though they've been having sex for years because they learn how to really be with each other. Uh, a lot of people don't know how to do this. They're so anxious and so much self-presentation and self-masking and going on in their relationships that it's not an act of intimacy, even though it's, it's anatomically entangled. <laughs> mm. So I'm going to miss you guys. <laughs> yeah, that's Aww. it right there. That's it. Yeah, bring us back if you if you want. Uh, <laughs> we could do a reunion episode. In like yeah, years. exactly. <laughs> or maybe you guys should just come out to uh, France. And, uh... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Sh- we should just go to France. Maybe even for for your thing. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would exactly. be fun. All right. Well, I think that does wrap it up for us. Unfortunately, we will. I will definitely miss doing the podcast and talking about this stuff, but we'll be able to continue to listen to at least Jennifer's voice over (laughs) at the Mormon Marriage blog. Look for her there or buy your tickets and go see her in France and hang out there. Yeah. Those are our options. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you, Laurel and Jennifer, for being a part of this and doing these 25, I guess, 26 episodes it has been a really great experience so thank you thank you thank you you guys bye-bye all right bye-bye